One Week Season. WS fam, the nation, my dudes and dudettes. Hilo here, bringing you installment number two of our best ball podcast series. You know the drill. We are heavily focused on theoretical components and aspects of the game, the beautiful game, I might add, of best ball. We cover game theory, we cover draft theory, we cover roster construction theory, all the elements, uh, the theoretical elements to try and give us an edge over the field that is all playing by the same prescribed rules. This week, we're going to cover some more nuanced theoretical aspects. Uh, We're kind of ditching game theory. We covered that pretty heavily last episode. And we're going to cover some of the more nuanced uh, elements of roster construction, some positional pairings, some ideas that a lot of the field is not thinking about currently. With that said... We'll bring him in. OWS fam, you know him around. You have seen him contributing on the site. That is my good dude, Pappy. Pappy, how are we doing, man? I'm doing great, man. Uh, just added to the family uh, two weeks ago, and I'm about five cups of coffee deep, so I'm right where you want me. That's beautiful, dude. I am drinking a Red Bull. We are grinding, baby. Speaking of grinding... Give me a little bit of your background with best ball this year, your, uh, your history. What are you seeing? Uh, how many drafts deep kind of what's going on with best ball with you and best ball this year? Yeah. So I'm fully in on the, on the best ball train this year. Uh, I missed the first year of the festivities and, uh, this last year I kind of picked up on, Hey, I want to get involved and did about a hundred UD drafts, um, last year and learned a lot. Definitely made some mistakes. Uh, did okay overall, but this year was the year I'm, I'm fully embracing it. Uh, I'm going to max enter uh, underdog. I'm going to max enter on DK, uh, probably do some FFPC uh, stuff as well. So fully embracing best ball. I think it's a, it's a great game. It's a lot of fun. Um, really a draft contest in a way. And I'm excited about it. I'm about a hundred drafts or so deep this year. So <laughs> getting started early drafting during dinner. You know what I mean? Yeah, dude, let's go. I was, uh, I was a big draft user uh, back in the day, uh, three, four years ago. I guess they closed, what, two years ago? Um, Before they were bought, and then I don't even know that fumble, how FanDuel handled that. But uh, anyway, um, this is the first year that Underdog is available to the fine residents of Arizona. So this is actually the first year where I'm able to uh, max the Underdog drafts. I was doing basically only... DraftKings last year after they launched their product. But uh, yeah, best ball grinder uh, in the strictest sense of the phrase um, and ready to get it this year as well. Uh, well, that's awesome, man. Um, so how are you seeing things this year? I want to I talk a little bit about kind of a this weird nuanced subject I like to call positional pairings. Um, a little background on that is like, what is a positional pairing? Well, it is almost strictly talking about the later rounds in a draft. You know, an underdog, you only have 18 rounds. Uh, On DraftKings, you only have 20. Everybody's playing by those same prescribed rules. And I feel like the field is just basically treating those late rounds as just these shot in the darks trying to, you know, catch lightning in a bottle. 
Well, if you look at like, and I hate using this phrase, but if you look at like historical numbers, like where do the flash in the pans come from? It's typically, you know, around seven to 12, somewhere in that nice, like meaty sweet spot. Typically we're not seeing world beaters that are going, you know, rounds 13 and later. But what we can do is we can piece together our puzzle a little bit differently in those later rounds to give us some of this hidden upside. I'll give an example of what I mean by that. We'll talk about the wide receiver position. Are there any, you know, wide receiver pairings where you can attack in the later rounds to give you like a combined wide receiver two plus profile for uh, an entire season? Yeah. So uh, two guys that I, I think kind of fit the together and that are both in the much later rounds are uh, John Michi for the Texans. And if you look at him, his ADP uh, right around 189, 190. So, so really low. Sometimes you can get him below 200. Um, he's a guy who coming back off an injury, um, he could easily fall into the wide receiver two role there behind cooks. Uh, I am a David Mills truther. I think, I think he's good. Um, I think he's going to, you know, be at least an average starter. The Texans, probably a team, uh, even though they have some young talent, a lot of draft picks spent this year, probably going to be losing, probably going to need to throw a lot. Uh, whoever falls into that wide receiver two role probably is going to have value. And if that's him, um, it might happen maybe in the second half of the year, depending on how he comes back from that injury. Uh, you pair him with somebody like, say, AJ Green, who you can get around 185, 186. So again, you can take those two in consecutive rounds. I've done that in several drafts. Um, not a lot of draft capital invested in that pairing. And you look at AJ Green, he's a veteran. He's steady. He's a savvy route runner. Uh, you know, the first six weeks of the season are probably going to be good for him because Hopkins isn't there. Uh, Marquise Brown is probably still kind of learning things, getting his feet wet. So maybe there's a chance AJ Green gets leaned on even more in those first six weeks. You might end up getting two guys there that could give you like wide receiver, two wide receiver, three numbers, and wouldn't have to put a lot into either of them. Yeah, I, I particularly like that you brought up um, Michi and AJ Green together. Why does that kind of strike my fancy? Well, you look at the situation in Arizona with DeAndre Hopkins suspended for the first six weeks of the season. I love that profile of AJ Green and Rondale Moore, who are you know should be stepping into these more sizable roles uh, over those first six weeks. And what is that first, why am I so, I guess, highly emphasizing that first six weeks? Well, that gives guys that have yet to break out in the game of the NFL some time to either adjust to the game or adjust to new roles, expanding roles. So, you know, what are those guys? Those are kind of those first, second, third year wide receivers who are now stepping into greater roles uh, that they have previously not had. Uh, especially for the rookies, obviously they make very natural pairings with guys like Rondell Moore and, or AJ green, uh, but also expanding that even further guys like Devin Duvernay, uh, from Baltimore, who is, you know, stepping into the wide receiver two role in Baltimore. And he's a guy who has never played, you know, greater than 450 snaps in the, at the NFL level, uh, entering his, um, third season and the athletic profile paired with, um, that expanding role is something that is highly intriguing to me late in drafts makes a very natural pairing with a guy like AJ Brown, a guy like, uh, Rondell Moore, these guys, uh, who over the first six weeks of the season, we can expect to have a little bit 
bigger role. Uh, and when you pair the two together, that gives that very natural um, progression from one to take over for six weeks, the next to kind of grow into an expanding role. Uh, other guys like that are along those same lines of thinking. Um, you mentioned uh, Michi, his teammate, Nico Collins, who obviously is entering his second year in the league, high draft capital wide receiver. Um, we talked about all the things kind of going on with Houston. Also, they, you know, Levy Smith is a head coach, uh, stepping into defensive play calling duties, new offensive quarter. They got a whole lot of stuff going on over there. Um, to where that first six weeks buffer kind of gives us a nice little comfortable, you know, pairing, very natural pairing to get some untapped hidden upside there. Uh, so I love that you mentioned those two in the same vein. Others, uh, the other teams that I'm kind of targeting along those same lines of thinking, uh, you mentioned the Cardinals, you mentioned Houston, Jacksonville Jaguars is one. Um, everybody just remembers the complete shit show that was last year, the experiment, uh, that happened with coaching staff, all that stuff. Just basically they had, they were doomed from the beginning on that team. Now we enter a new era. They have a new coaching staff. Um, we have uh, Trevor Lawrence, who's entering his second year. What did they do? They brought in Christian Kirk. His ADP is somewhere in the eighth, ninth round. They um, obviously have Marvin Jones Jr. left over from last year, who, oh, by the way, if you've been following my Twitter at all, you kind of know my love for him. He was top five in the NFL in red zone looks, red zone target share, oh, yada, yada, yada. He was getting peppered down there in close, obviously. Very natural uh, for him. Uh, makes a lot of sense with that big body frame. But we start talking like, where's he going? He's going 13th, 14th, 15th round sometimes. Obviously, Travis Etienne is up there in the fifth now, the fourth round, but pass catching running back. And then we look at like Trevor Lawrence and what we expect from this team. Well, he threw the ball like over 600 times as a rookie. And now he's entering his second year with an actual competent coaching staff. Uh, I expect, obviously, they you know they address defensive issues um, in the draft this year, but they're not. They do not have this like all-star world-beating defense. So we can expect some negative game script. We can expect them to be chucking the ball around a little bit. Six hundred pass attempts is a very median, you know, a, a very natural median product, projection from that team. And then you start looking like who else do they have on their team? They have a failed LaVisca, a failed experiment in LaVisca Chenault. Um, and their depth chart gets very thin rather quickly. So looking at like a positional pairing of teammates in Christian Kirk and Marvin Jones Jr., that's a very easy positional pairing and does not cost a lot. You know, an eighth rounder and a, and a 13th rounder uh, could get you wide receiver two plus numbers for the entirety of the season. So uh, that's another one I've been targeting pretty heavily. Um, any other like late round positional pairings, uh, that you're seeing early in drafts? Yeah. Um, another one that I like a lot, uh, kind of in the same vein of that team pairing that you were talking about with the Jaguars is, uh, Jamison Williams and uh, DJ Chuck. Um, I think those two on the lions have a lot of the same qualities as the pairing that you just mentioned on the Jaguars, where, uh, again, we're talking about a guy that's coming back off of an injury in Williams and, uh, probably going to be. Uh, a good first opening couple of weeks for DJ while he gets back. But then even once they're both back, um, you know, they have uh, raw in the slot, but other than him, 
um, where are they going? I mean, they've never really utilized Hawkinson uh, to his fullest potential. And you got to think that the Lions are probably going to be pretty frisky this year. I mean, they were biting a lot of knees last year. They might not have got a lot of wins, but they they bit some knees. Them and my cat both bite a lot of knees. And uh, so they, you know, really fought hard. And I could see them being down in a lot of games, um, maybe being that team whose offense is a little bit better than expected. And they kind of become a shootout type team because uh, they're giving up a lot of points. I mean, if you look at them, they do have the weapons. I know Goff is, is nothing special, but uh, outside of him, that offense, it has some weapons on it now this year, uh, really talent efficient last year and still um, we're in a lot of ball games. So I could see those two being a good example of two teammates where you look at a guy who coming back off injury, the other teammate will probably pick up some of the slack till he's back. But even then, once they're back, uh, I think one of the two of them will have a good week uh, very often with the Lions kind of in catch up mode. Yeah, that one is very interesting for me personally. At ADP, I'm fine like with the 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 pairing of those two, you know, the the cheapest two of, uh, you know, an NFL caliber offense, um, there's always merit to having that exposure. When I look at the Lions personally, what I see is a coaching staff that has tried to build that team from the inside out. And what I mean by that is they have invested heavily in the offensive line, in the defensive line, and in their linebacking core. So what does that tell me how this coaching staff wants to try and win games? To me, that screams that they are going to be looking to win slugfests and and win through their you know front four to five on each side of the ball. Um, so that's why I say you know like at ADP, those two wide receivers make a lot of sense from a from a expected volume standpoint at ADP at cost. Uh, but for me, it's hard for me to get too overly invested in an offense where I project them to be leaning rather heavily on one, the run and two the short passing game um, with Jared Goff at quarterback. So um, that wasn't meant to like, Pappy, what are you talking about? It's the lions. That was meant to give another perspective on. And I think that's, what's very like one of the most important things we can do is pull in different perspectives and kind of make up our own mind. And that's kind of that like teach a man to fish mentality that we've adapted at OWS, trying to make people, you know, better at the decision making that goes into how we beat these games and try and beat these games. Um, so I, I didn't mean to make you feel like I was just shitting on your lines call, but I wanted to give my perspective of of that offense. Oh no, uh, no, no, well. no, not at all. I, I totally see what you're saying. <laughs> and uh it's yeah, it's it's always kind of about ADP. I mean, you know, the cliche saying of, you know, don't hate the player, hate the ADP, but there's a lot of truth to it. I mean, you can essentially draft anyone if they're 30 picks below their ADP. Um, you know, so I think that it, when you look at players and you think about an offense, yeah, you want to be thinking about, do I think this offense can be maybe a little bit better than people expect or don't? But by the same token, it's kind of like, hey, can a guy be a wide receiver one on his offense? And then if his ADP is, you know, well into the hundreds, there might be value there regardless of the offense, you know? So I think that that's another way to kind of think about it is um, what is this guy's role and what's his ADP and is to do those things match. Cause sometimes you'll find they don't. Yeah. And that's a very natural segue into the next thing I wanted to talk about, 
Um, and that's opportunity cost and dynamic ADP. So what is ADP? It literally stands for average draft position. If it is an average draft position, that means that it is constantly changing and updating and is very dynamic throughout our draft season, we'll call it, the draft window. When is the period where drafts are open for a particular contest? We look at a contest like uh, the BBM over on Underdog or the Millie Maker over on, uh, or the, sorry, the Millie over on DraftKings. Like these contests have like such an exponentially large draft window that the ADP is going to be shifting all over the place. And this is kind of ties into a concept that we talked about uh, last week on the first podcast with John. Um, and that's this idea of like dynamic ADP and when ADP, I'll say like, when ADP matters, really. Uh, and to me, like ADP is not really set and really, we'll call it just imperfect until we start getting into like a week or two before the actual NFL season starts. So if that's the case, and we're in this like early draft window where ADP almost is like just this like flimsy guideline, how are you taking advantage of that with respect to your individual exposures? Yeah, so ADP, it changes obviously throughout the year. I mean, there's certain predictable ways it's going to change. We can pretty much reliably predict that rookies will move up in ADP throughout the draft process. So one thing that you can do if you're drafting early and you know you like a certain rookie is target them if you're going to be drafting now. Um, a guy for me that would kind of fit that bill is uh, Christian Watson on the Packers. Um, I'm a big fan of his. I just think there's so much uncertainty in Green Bay and that he has eye-popping kind of physical stats, physical traits that remind me of Randy Moss back in the day. And he obviously has an elite quarterback. So I feel like if he can figure out uh, the pro game, there's just so much opportunity there for a guy you can draft around uh, 115. And if the typical rookie ADP thing holds up, um, you know, he might be tougher to get and pair with Rodgers, especially um, you know, later in draft. So I think that's definitely one way that you can, you can do it is trying to take advantage of those predictable factors in ADP. Uh, I think another thing that you can do is try to envision who is going to really benefit if something happens that hasn't happened yet. And an example of that for me would be Cameron Brait was a guy that I heavily drafted um, probably about three, starting three weeks ago uh, with the idea that I could take him in the last round of a lot of drafts, if not every draft that I took him in. Uh, and if Gronk were to come back, I mean, Brait still had a role. Gronk never plays the full season at this point in his career anyway. So for a guy that you're taking with the last pick, he still could do something, even if Gronk plays. Uh, and then of course, if Gronk retires, which he did, um, even Brait's ADP is going to move up probably, you know, 50, 60 spots. And so if you're able to get him with, you know, your last pick, um, then when Gronk retires, you have an advantage. So I think looking at, at those two things, you know, you can look at rookies, you can target rookies that you like if you're drafting early or, um, you know, try to think in your head of if something happens in the future that hasn't yet, uh, who could move up a lot. And if you can invest in a guy that, you know, you don't have to put a lot of draft capital into uh, in a spot that could move up a lot, could be a pick you want to make early. You had to bring up Gronk, you bastard. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, it's well known that if you've been following my best ball journey this year that I have invested heavily 
And the other side of that, in Gronkowski. Oh, I didn't know that. Guy, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. You want to you you, you see a dead body, dude? Check this out. 64% Rob Gronkowski. Oh, come on, man. Come on. Uh, dude, he was a guy who... <laughs> The other, the other side of that argument, and I, I love that you brought up that thought process because he was a guy that was going in the 10th, 11th rounds to begin draft season that we had no idea his status. Had he you know, said, I'm going to miss camp and then I'll, I'll come play another year to win a Super Bowl, love Tom Brady, let's go smoochie smoochie. Like, had he said that, like, he would have jumped up immediately into the, you know, tight end five, tight end six discussion. And he was being drafted as the tight end 14, 15, somewhere around there. So that was a guy where the opportunity cost versus dynamic ADP was more heavily weighted in favor of, you know, upside than his opportunity cost was uh, kind of dictating. So I took a heavy stand on Gronk. Um, <laughs> the sick part about that whole thing is now I'm taking Gronk in the, tw- in the 18th round or the 20th round, depending on where I'm drafting. Uh, as I'm just doubling down and I'll just freaking eat my shorts. If, uh, he doesn't play, uh, you're, like, you're, you're like me buying shit coins, man. You just got to lower your average cost in. Lower that average cost. Yeah. Dollar Gronk <laughs> averaging. That's what we're going to call it. now. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love that you brought up the rookies. Um, my a guy that I'm targeting heavily, uh, at ADP and it's actually, it's actually slipping and getting, um, he's falling in drafts a little bit more. That's Traylon Burks. Um, in that rookie discussion, we talk about, I'm going to explain a little bit of the why behind the how on Traylon, because I think it's a, a good, um, uh, a good mental, uh, exercise, we'll call it. Uh, yeah, for lack of a better phrase, but the Tennessee Titans, we look at them. They basically were gifted the 32nd hardest strength of schedule last year. So they had like the easiest strength of schedule in the entire NFL. What did that mean? It meant that they were either in neutral to positive game scripts more. We obviously know that this team wants to run the football when that is the case. But we look at what happened when they fell behind in games last year. Well, they were very NFL average in pass rates when playing from behind. So if they now do not have that same easy strength of schedule, if they now do not, or if they now have changing personnel on their offensive line, if they now have Derrick Henry, who has another 250 plus touches on his frame and he is what, 32, 30, how old is he? 31? I don't know. Uh, but the dude has some tread on those tires that is off. He's been around the game a while. He's taken a beating. He's a between the uh, tackles bruiser. So if Derrick Henry, we have to project, you know, a little bit more missed games uh, than we did going into last year. If we know that the Titans might be not, I guess, not in their happy comfort zone as much this NFL season and able to run the football as much as they want. Well, what does that mean? Ryan Tannehill is a guy who I've been targeting way late in drafts. Um, currently have 22% of Tannehill as kind of that like late, late quarterback two that, oh, by the way, like has also scored seven rushing touchdowns each of the last two years. Um, so this guy who like gives me a like nice, comfy weekly floor to select as my quarterback two, um, what is that trickle down effect? That trickle down effect is a guy like Traylon Burks who 
now like it's coming out that like the reports are the first one that came out is he has asthma. Okay, cool. The second one that came out is he's going to start the season as the wide receiver three on the Titans. It's like, okay, bro. Like you have a 33 year old in his age 33 season, Robert Woods, uh, you, who is coming off a major injury. You have, uh, Nick Westbrook, Akine, who is just a guy, you know, by every sense of the metric. So like, yeah. Okay. I, I do. I'm throwing that in the camp speak bucket of like Traylon Burks is this athletic freak who is NFL ready from a route running perspective. That is what I want to invest in. So I've been targeting Traylon Burks as a guy that, um, is likely to see his ADP increase as the draft window moves on. I'm loving this negative press that's coming out. Uh, I'm just gobbling him up basically. Um, Obviously, the other guy kind of in um, that same bucket for me is Drake London, a guy who's stepping into, you know, potential the wide receiver one on his team um, and a team that we should expect to be, you know, playing from behind a lot this season. I expect his um, ADP to creep up as draft window uh, inches closer and closer to the start of the season. So those are kind of my two rookie targets uh, in that line of thinking where, you know, the potential upside does not match where they're being drafted. You know, Traylon Burks is now going in the seventh, eighth round time. Um, and uh, that's right around actually where Drake London is going as well. Um, so that's uh, right in the window of like that meaty spot of where these flash in the pan world beaters, you know, league winners come from. Uh, and I'm kind of investing heavily in those, the opportunity, the potential opportunity that those two have. Uh, love that. Any departing shots? departing any parting shots on this idea of opportunity cost and dynamic ADP. Yeah. One last thing about the importance of rookie wide receivers. If you look at the guys who we would term league winners, the last couple of years, we see a lot of rookie wide receivers showing up Jefferson chase um, almost as if you kind of have to hit that guy. And then we look at this wide receiver class coming into the league this year, probably uh, one of the best, if not the best we've seen in a very long time. It's reasonable to believe that at least one of them is going to be a guy that could be a league winner. So as a guy who's playing a lot of entries, um, I'm trying to spread my exposure out across those rookie wide receivers because it's very logical to think one of them is going to be a big difference maker. Yeah. Another um, kind of idea that came up as you were speaking right there is the second and third year guys who have either had an injury, uh, in year one or have not seen the opportunity. Um, and that potential upside in those guys at this, you know, depressed ADP is where those league winners could come from too. The main guy on that list for me from the wide receivers is Kadarius Tony. Um, in New York now has Brian Dabble column plays as the head coach and is on an offense that should theoretically and on paper have the pieces to, you know, gel well with Brian Dabble's offense. Um, you have a, a tall, moderate arm strength, mobile quarterback. You have obviously a, all world running back in Saquon Barkley. And then you have Kenny Galladay, who is this possession wide receiver who's capable of field stretching. You have Kadarius Tony, you have uh Wandale, 
Uh, you have all these guys who you have Sterling Shepard even coming off injury, but you have Sterling Shepard on the inside. You have all these playmakers, right? Who are, who are capable. Uh, we'll call them just chess pieces in Brian Dabble's offense. So we know Dabble is very good at designing an offense to maximize the talent that he has on the field. Well, we talk about like what talent, like it's like Saquon Barkley and Kadarius Tony, who are like the world beating talent on that football field for that team. So Kadarius Tony going in the ninth, 10th, sometimes round uh, coming off of a season where he showed flashes and then struggled with injuries. So that is a guy who kind of fits that profile of the, the potential upside does not kind of match where he's going right now. Uh, sweet man. I dig it. Any parting shots with that kind of thought process? No, I think that that was good. Good coverage of the topic. Sweet. The next thing that we're going to, that's going to lead us directly into is this idea of ceiling versus floor. What I want to hear your thoughts and then I'll go. So you go first. What, what are you doing with this idea of like ceiling versus floor from, um, individual players on a roster? Yeah. So everything always does come down to roster construction for an individual roster and what you're doing for ceiling versus floor at each perspective position. But I think generally speaking, um, you really do actually need both when you're building a best ball roster. Uh, we think about spiked weeks, right? We need spiked weeks and it's true. You do need spiked weeks, but that doesn't mean uh, you want to draft an entire roster full of players that you think are going to get you spiked weeks, because that means uh, you're also going to have a lot of weeks where you have duds and some spiked weeks, you're going to have everybody spiking and you waste some of those scores. So a good combination uh, is typically going to be some players that you think are more floor type steady players. And then guys that you think have a ton of upside, uh, a good combo, a good, a good example of a guy who is more of a floor player that I have a lot of this year is Keenan Allen. Um, I, I love Keenan Allen in the third round, anywhere that I can get him. Um, I'm pretty much drafting him. And the reason is, is that he's, he's just so consistent. Um, you know, his year long numbers are typically pretty good overall. Uh, he gives you, you know, it pretty much fills a wide receiver slot for you every single week. Uh, and when you think about the value of that, um, it allows you to kind of draft a lot of maybe deep threat upsidey guys later, like, um, a Hardman or a Jefferson, um, a guy who you think is going to probably have some big weeks getting behind the defense, but it's also going to have a lot of duds. And so I think when you're looking at like a floor and upside combo or ceiling combo, it really is a combination. And I think maybe a little bit of a missed thought in best ball is I just want a team full of deep threats. Uh, and I don't think that that's the best way to build a roster. Yeah, this is, uh, this is super interesting. And I'm glad that we're getting these different perspectives, uh, with, I want to go to kind of my ownership right now. Um, with respect to the chargers specifically, I have 1% Keenan Allen, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, so that was actually a surprise to me. I have 1% Keenan Allen, um, and I have 26% Mike Williams. So that kind of shows you where I'm falling on that particular team's pass catchers. My so, interestingly, I think I might be the exact opposite. I'm probably right around 20, 29% Keenan Allen and like 1% Mike Williams. Yeah, dude. So I actually, again, going back to our previous discussion of like different <laughs> perspectives, uh, I think this is highly important for the listeners to hear. 
my reasoning is I want parts of that offense, right? We know that Mike Williams has struggled with soft tissue injuries before in the past. We know that Keenan Allen has kind of been this like steady Eddie, we'll call it. The volume's always there. The production is always there. The touchdowns are usually, you know, you can usually in a standard season bank between six and eight touchdowns. Like that is highly valuable. To me, what do I see? When I look at the underlying metrics of those two pass catchers, I see Keenan Allen, who has been on a three-year decline in underlying metrics. What is that? That's um, targets per route run. That is um, everything from catch rate to targets to route, per route run to expected fantasy points per touch. I see a guy like Mike Williams, who finally stayed healthy for a majority of the year and then put up you know, high-end wide receiver two numbers across the whole year. But what, what am I focusing on when I, when you, when you hear that draft profile from specifically the chargers wide receivers, and I have a ton, I have a a, a lot of Palmer as well. Um, as a guy who is the wide receiver three on that offense, obviously is going to be a guy who can play either inside or on the perimeter for either Keenan Allen or Mike Williams, should they miss time. But that is what, or I guess like, what do you glean from like hearing my exposure versus your exposure about Keenan Allen versus Mike Williams in particular? Well, it's really that like we just have these differing draft strategies and neither one is right. Neither one is wrong, but it's how we are approaching things, managing our exposure over our entire portfolio to try and reach the end game goal. And so I want to highlight that process because it all starts with when developing your draft strategy, your game plan, how you're going to attack these contests. It all starts with, you know, the result and works back from there. The result for these going into them, even, you know, the same thing for DFS is what do I want to accomplish? Do I want to Am I approaching these contests trying to get as many teams possible through to the money rounds? Am I sacrificing advancement rate to hopefully capture these lightning in a bottle super teams? It, it all depends on like what your goal is and how you work it back from there. So for me personally, I am approaching this year's best ball contest as basically I am trying things that the field isn't doing. A lot of that came out in the first podcast episode where, you know, John and I were talking about three running back rosters. We were talking about like, what is optimal from a game theoretical standpoint? Well, optimal is probably like, if you work back from a result, it's probably one quarterback, three running backs, a shit ton of wide receivers and one tight end. Like you'd have to get like the nuts and that's, you know, that's taking variance to an extreme, but that is probably optimal from working backwards. The thing is we're playing against other humans. We don't need optimal. We're striving to put ourselves in the best position to make the most money when we get things right. And that is what I wanted to highlight with this kind of exploration of specifically Keenan Allen versus Mike Williams is I'm accepting increased variance 
from individual players because I am typically building my rosters with a heavier wide receiver stable because wide receivers offer more spike week potential once you get past round seven or so. So if I'm building more, you know, if you want to call it anything, you know, I don't like putting labels on how I'm approaching things, but like I'm approaching things from like a hyper fragile running back perspective kind of this year where, you know, if you catch that, you know, lightning in the flash in the pan, lightning in a bottle, whatever, where your three or four running backs on your roster stay healthy for the entire season. Now you have these like loaded wide receiver, heavy rosters because I'm doing that. And because I've accepted the additional variance that goes with that from how I'm approaching these contests in particular, I'm able to take the higher variance individual wide receiver from the chargers as the example in Mike Williams over Keenan Allen. So that was a lot. That was that was a lot of of theoretical components boiled down into an A or B discussion. Uh, I hope I did that justice, and I hope that was easy enough to follow. I'd expect that you, from hearing that your response to that question, I'd expect that you're approaching things from I want as many teams into the high variance rounds as possible, and let variance take over from there. Is that? accurate in how you're approaching these contests this year. So, yeah. And first of all, we, we agree on Palmer. We both love Palmer. So I think when we, when you look at uh, the Chargers offense, you know, it's hard to look at it and say, I, you know, I don't want exposure. And then the interesting kind of scenario about Williams versus Allen is that they're going within one pick of each other. So mm-hmm. it's a very interesting case study of, you know, which way do you go there? Um, the, there were two deciding factors for me that, that pushed me a little bit towards Allen. And I think, the first one you mentioned is the soft tissue injury history of Mike Williams. I am just, I stay away from guys that have that history as much as possible. It just tends to cost them games. He did stay healthy. Um, and so it could be something where it's just totally healed. It never happens again. But by the same token, I've played a lot of sports and a lot of guys I've played with, they're just guys that have that soft tissue issue and it tends to jump back up. So it's, I'm, I'm very frightful of the soft tissue guys um, versus Allen who just never really misses any time for the most part um, and is so consistent when he does play. But I think the the real reason that I like Allen is he's actually somewhat unique. There's a lot of deep threats that you can get all throughout the draft. So um, when I'm looking at a guy that I feel like is going to consistently fill up a wide receiver slot for me, um, I feel like that's valuable because there's actually less of that that I feel like than there are guys later that I'm going to be able to go after who are going to hit big weeks and spiked weeks for me. So I feel like he balances the team a little bit. Whereas if I target Williams in that slot in round three, um, I feel like I end up with a, with a lot of high and with a high variance team. And again, that comes down to kind of how you're building your team. Um, each individual roster construction, you know, are you going nine wide receivers? Are you going seven wide receivers? Um, and really the direction that you want to go. But I think the reason that I like Allen is because um, kind of like you said, I am trying to get the maximum amount of teams through to the high variance rounds. That is kind of how I look at it. What percentage of teams do I get through to that round? And then hope the chips fall in my favor at that point. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of all of those things, I guess, but it is a very interesting debate between the two going, you know, one pick apart and being on the same team. That also brings up an interesting discussion that let's just get into right now. And that is 
does that mindset change from platform to platform? Uh, a contest like Underdog, where it's two entries go on from the first round versus a contest like DraftKings, where it's one uh, that advances from that first round. It does change for me, yeah. Um, I think that there is a difference. If you're looking at uh, a also the, the additional roster spots makes a difference. Um, you know, if you're looking at underdog where you can get through a very high percentage of teams in a lot of cases and then hope, hey, I got a lot of teams through, something's going to trickle through to the end uh, versus DraftKings where you have to win outright for your team to move on. Uh, I think it does make a difference. And again, I think that extra roster spot between the two makes a big difference because if you're able to add an extra receiver or two, uh, you probably feel more confident in going with a high variance lineup. uh, Whereas UD really limits your roster construction. I mean, if you want to go with nine wide receivers, um, you're going a two, five, two, probably. So um, you're kind of thin at the, at the other spots. If you're going less than nine wide receivers, you start to go seven and eight builds. Uh, you want to have some receivers that you feel confident about, or you could end up with some pretty dud weeks. So I think it does make a difference between the platforms. Yeah, dude. Uh, I love it. Um, and the, the reason that I'm able to kind of put all my chips in on, you know, the, the onesie twosies of deciding between Mike Williams and Keenan Allen in particular, um, again, that goes a lot into like my draft strategy in the sense that I'm allocating purposefully allocating less draft capital and assets into the running back position to where I can accept the increased variance on individual rosters at the wide receiver position, because I quite plain and simply have more volume at that position. Um, also a guy like Adam Thielen, who's going in the seventh round, who is that same guy as Keenan, <laughs> who, who I've just been absolutely smashing. Uh, love me some Thielen there. Uh, dude, I, that was an awesome discussion. Let us continue. We have obviously, um, in last episode, we broke down the v- different draft windows and you know, where do we, what does that mean to us when, you know, we're drafting now, which is before camp even starts versus between camp and the uh, preseason starting. And then we have preseason to the start of the NFL season. That's kind of my three draft windows um, that we kind of got into last episode. I won't belabor that here, but with that, we kind of have this ambiguity that enters the discussion um, in backfields, in depth charts at the wide receiver position, um, in unknown injury stuff with you know a couple of the guys that we talked about earlier, um, with suspensions. All that kind of comes into play when we're drafting so early <laughs> with guys like Rob Gronkowski, rest in peace. Uh, yeah, anyway. So we have all this ambiguity. How are you handling the uncertainty associated with drafting so early. Yeah. So uh, I try to think of guys that if (sighs) certain news breaks certain way, they're going to move way up. Um, That's the way that I kind of look at trying to draft the ambiguity, you know, embrace the variance with early drafting. Um, I think that there are a lot of examples of that, Um, you know, Cameron break being one of them, but uh, you can also look at a guy like, uh, that I'm drafting really late in a lot of drafts, Marlon Mack. Um, he's a guy who you look at Houston again, we talked about that offense, uh, that there's potential there, I think. And you say, okay, well, you know, Damian Pierce, you have a rookie there, a fourth round pick. 
Um, is he going to beat Marlon Mack out? I don't know, right? But no one does. If the preseason happens and Marlon Mack looks like he's going to be the guy down there, uh, he's going to go way up above his ADP of 200. So um, it's another guy who, again, when you think about these guys too, think about Mack, what are you really risking? You're using a pick around 200. And what's the worst case scenario that he's 35, 40% roll behind? I mean, do you think Pierce is going to have 100% of the carries? Probably not. So you know, it's just not a lot of risk and there's definitely upside if he ends up taking on that lead role. And so I think when you're drafting early, one thing you definitely want to look for are situations like that um, injury uncertainty. When you think about a guy like maybe Gus Edwards, um, he's going substantially lower than uh, Dobbins. And when you think about they're both coming back off a serious injury from the early reports I've seen, it looks like Edwards is more ahead. Um, Edwards is a pretty good player. What's going to happen there? I don't know. But I know that if I'm drafting Edwards around 170, 180, and something happens with Dobbins' recovery and Edwards ends up being the lead back, he's going to shoot all the way up probably into the fifth, sixth round even. So um, that's another good example of a guy when you're drafting early, you know, you don't have to take a big risk. And again, what's your worst case scenario? Um, you know, he has a 40% role. So you're still getting something for where you're drafting him. There's just almost no risk in taking guys like that this early. And then I think the other area other than injury is, people who I think are misevaluating role. Uh, one of my favorite players uh, has been Clyde Edwards, a I'm going to call him Clyde Edwards unfair this, this year, because I think he's going to be unfair to own. Uh, he's, actually, <laughs> he's, he's actually my only guy that I have, you know, upwards of 60% of anyone. He's number one guy that I've drafted on the most of my teams. Um, I'm not sure why his ADP is so low. When I first started drafting, it was in the eighties. It's come up into the mid seventies. It'll probably continue. I mean, continue to come up. I mean, you figure if he looks like the starter, uh, in camp, his ADP could come all the way up to the third round. I feel like if people think he's going to be the starter for Kansas city, uh, I'm not sure why it's so low. I'm not sure why the ADP on all the chiefs is so low, but that's an, another topic. Um, but I feel like that's how you want to try to take advantage of trying to figure out guys that could move way up. If something breaks their way. I love those two calls, uh, particularly the Houston backfield. It, what's hilarious to me over the early draft window is that Damian Pierce is like, what a ninth rounder eighth rounder something like that marlon mack is like a 15th rounder and then rex burkhead who they just paid to return to the team uh is like undrafted most of the time so it's kind of funny to me that people just look at that team and just assume that the rookie a fourth round rookie nonetheless is going to come in and just take over the backfield when it's highly likely that marlon back marlon mack is the first and second down grinder and Rex Burkhead is mixing in on passing downs. Uh, that's how that, that offense is likely to start out this season. So love that call. Um, two guys that we covered last week that I am really, really trying to take advantage of the ambiguity in the backfields on this early draft window, uh, chase Edmonds and Rashad Penny. Um, they're both going around ADP. I think Chase Edmonds is at like 112 and Rashad Penny is at like 115 uh, overall. So that, these are two guys who you can get in the ninth, 10th round that are like the, again, the opportunity cost and the ambiguity associated with that backfield. The reward could be absolutely tantalizing. You look at Miami, everything that they've changed, they got the new coaching staff. Uh, obviously, they brought in Tyreek Hill. They have um, basically the run game is expected to look a lot like it did in San Francisco. 
Um, so there's a lot going, and then they paid they paid Chase Edmonds like 5.75 mil average yearly value. So it's like that risk to reward profile in the ninth tenth round is something I want to be extremely overweight right now. Currently, I have Chase Edmonds at 25%, Rashad Penny at 22%. Those are two guys that could be that you know league winner running back from those middle to late rounds. Also, taking that one step further. I'm trying to force a lot of three and four running back rosters with those two in particular, because if they absolutely smash, which is what you're saying that is going to happen by drafting them on your roster, if they absolutely smash, I want them absolutely smashing as my RB2 or my RB3, as opposed to the field is most likely drafting them as RB3, RB4, RB5 even sometimes. What does that mean? That means I can load up my wide receiver position on individual rosters that have them as my ride, uh, running back two or three, or sometimes I've even got a little frisky and taken them as uh, my RB1 on roster to just absolutely load up at every other position. So the theoretical component that's associated with that line of thinking is like, one, that's like something that nobody is doing, but two, like, if those guys absolutely smash and they absolutely smash for the RB three spot on a lot of people's rosters. Well, now you basically know that those individual rosters are going to have a lot of running backs in the flex position. What does that mean from a like theoretical upside standpoint? Well, we're talking about this like long contest and how valuable spike weeks are, how valuable spike weeks are specifically in the high variance rounds. So the, the playoff rounds where it's one week, theoretically, the answer is to try and draft so that a wide receiver is filling your flex. What does that mean on a platform like underdog? Well, you have to start three wide receivers to begin with. Now you talk about having a wide receiver in the flex. That's four positions that you're hunting for upside, uh, for each individual roster. So that again, goes into the like theoretical aspects of leveraging these unknowns and this ambiguity early in the draft window, taking that one step further. How do I maximize my upside while doing that? For me, that's to draft them as if I expect them to be these world beating running backs where they can fill one of my two required running back slots. And I still have all this crazy amount of depth and upside at the wide receiver position. Uh, what are your thoughts on that kind of lengthy, lengthy exploration I just went into? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that that is a good way to take advantage of the early draft window. Uh, you know, when you think about drafting early, you just really have to try to think ahead. You have to think about what is going to change and who is going to move way up and who's going to move way down. And you can kind of try to take a stab at some of those things, um, and figure it out. I think, you know, a lot of what you talked about there, um, is good. Chase Edmonds is a guy who I'm huge on as well. I think I'm around, you know, 28, 29% Chase Edmonds. Um, and he just makes a lot of sense for all the reasons you said. I mean, money talks, they paid him through the nose. Um, if you look at his performance in a um, system similar to San Francisco's with their new coaching staff, uh, where they run a lot of stretch plays, Edmonds was actually one of the best backs in the league on those types of plays last year. Um, I think Edmonds could have a great year. And again, in an offense with Tyree Hill, that's probably going to improve this year. Um, so I think Edmonds is, is a great call. In fact, in leagues where I'm able to get 
um, Hilaire and Edmonds as my running back. I feel comfortable with them as my, as my one and two running back. And if you go that cheap at running back, you can get some very interesting teams uh, out there that are absolutely loaded everywhere else. So uh, I am right there with you in terms of, I think that you can get those guys um, late. I think that if we see in the preseason, Edmonds looks like he's going to be the starter. He's a guy who you could see come all the way up into like the fifth round. So, um, you know, you got to take your shot on some of those running backs now because the only reason they aren't higher is ambiguity about their role. Um, And you can kind of read between the lines and say, well, they paid Edmund a ton. Um, You know, in Hilaire's case, uh, they brought in Ronald Jones. I mean, about the least threatening guy they could possibly bring in. So you kind of got to read the tea leaves and say, well, if these guys end up being the guy, um, you're getting them at a huge discount drafting right now. Yes. A lot of uh, mistakes that I see made along those same lines of thinking is trying to manage variance on rosters that try and leverage the variance associated with this ambiguity. What do I mean by that is taking like two members of Miami backfield on the same roster or taking Kenneth Walker and Rashad Penny or, you know, taking Clyde Edwards Hilaire and Ronald Jones. Like, no, dude, that is shooting yourself in the foot. Basically you're burning a roster spot. What you're doing by trying to leverage the ambiguity early in the draft window is you are saying like, if you draft a player on your roster, you're saying that person is basically going to finish a top 12 member at his position come league end. If you start drafting through, you know, with that line of thinking, then you can stop trying to manage variants and leverage variants all on the same roster. Like how you should be approaching that. If you're not convinced Chase Edmonds is a lead back in Miami, or you're not convinced Rashad Penny is a lead back in uh, Seattle, or you're not convinced CEH is worthy of his seventh, eighth round draft capital, take them. Don't take anybody else on their specific NFL team on those rosters that you do draft them and then draft the other guy on other rosters. That is how you manage the variance and you do it with your overall portfolio in mind, as opposed to doing it on individual rosters. That is just like shooting yourself basically in the foot because now you are playing a game where everybody else has 18 or 20 roster spots. And you're saying, I can beat everybody else who drafted in this contest with only 17 roster spots or only 19 roster spots on DraftKings. You are shooting yourself in the foot and beginning at a disadvantage. And in a massive contest like these, that is doing yourself a massive disservice. Yeah, so I think that's a, that's a floor ceiling thing right there. Um, people are used to the idea of handcuffing from yearly fantasy football, which is really a floor idea of saying, hey, I just need to win head-to-head against this other guy every week. So as long as I have a high floor with this handcuff, I'll be good. Um, whereas best ball is I need to have the best team out of a bajillion rosters, and I also need to put up high scores every week to finish in first or second out of everybody in the league. So if you do that, if you, if you handcuff, um, exactly like you said, you're basically killing a roster spot because you're saying, okay, well, if the guy I drafted high, my high RB stays healthy all year, then this roster spot is useless. If my healthy RB gets hurt, well, then I'm down a roster spot anyway. So you, you can't win. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, love it, man. The last thing that I want to talk about on this episode, uh, we're running come up right here at about an hour. So we're going to talk about one more, like, kind of big topic. Um, and that's the idea of undervalued teams and undervalued team stacks. 
uh, from this early draft window. Are you targeting any of these, you know, undervalued teams, undervalued stacks? We mentioned a couple of them earlier, but are you targeting any of these uh, late team stacks uh, early in this early draft window? I, I absolutely am. And this is, I'll give you my, my two favorite ones, but there's many that I think are undervalued, but, um, and I think the chiefs, I think the chiefs are super undervalued. I, I don't really understand their whole team ADP. I mean, if you look at the chiefs from previous years, even two or three years ago, uh, you couldn't stack them. It wasn't even possible. And you look at now what it would take, uh, you know, to get a full chief stack and you can do it with, you know, a first or second round pick on Kels, a fourth or fifth round pick on Mahomes, a seventh or eighth round pick on CEH. And then you're going all the way to like 120 to 130, sometimes even later before you can get Hardman. Uh, if you want more or Scantling, you're still not investing a pick around 100 is all you're doing. Even Juju is going around 56 or 60. So you can build all kind of different chief stacks. My favorite, um, you know, are Hardman. I think Hardman is being so overlooked. He's the last chief being drafted. Um, I don't see any reason he doesn't have an inside track on kind of that hill roll. Even if he doesn't get the full hill roll, uh, he doesn't need to, to be a massive value where he's being drafted. Uh, you can stack him and Mahomes for really not a ton of draft capital. Um, Mahomes is all the way in the fourth and fifth round. A lot of times this year, he feels like a lock to be in the top three QBs with just as good a chance to be the QB one as any other player. Um, I think that the chiefs are an absolutely undervalued, um, team that is probably going to put up a lot of points this year. I don't think they're going to take a huge step back hill, uh, departing. So I think them, and then another one that I really like are the, are the 49ers. Um, I just think that Trey Lance uh, has a ton of upside. He's kind of a guy that the only reason he's not going even higher is some ambiguity about if he's going to start. But I mean, I think he's going to start. Um, they're a very concentrated offense with Debo, IU, Kittle, and Mitchell or whoever Shanahan puts back there. Um, but the receivers are very, um, you know, concentrated. And I just think that you can get a Lance, you know, Debo is a second round pick. Um, Kittle's going in, you know, the middle rounds. Uh, and Ayuk's going in the mid to late rounds, you can get basically their whole offense for not a huge investment. So I think both those team stacks are, are pretty undervalued right now. I love those calls, man. I will add two before we get out of here. The first is Baltimore with Rashad Bateman and Devin Duvernay. Um, basically it's Mark Andrews or bust a lot from that team, uh, based off of early ADP. Um, another one is the giants that I mentioned earlier with Kadarius, Tony, um, and Kenny Galladay. Um, we talked about Jacksonville with Marvin Jones and Christian Kirk. We talked about Houston with Brandon cooks, uh, John Michi and, uh, Nico Collins. We'll all also even throw in uh, a little sleeper tight end, Brevin Jordan from Houston, who can also be thrown in that discussion entering his age 22 season. He started finally getting the lead tight end role, uh, over the last four. So just the last month of, uh, 2021 NFL season, um, put up some good numbers when he was in that role, scored three touchdowns. Uh, so that's a guy you know, super late. You can get him 18th, 20th round, uh, somewhere in there. Uh, and then probably my, favorite and highest exposure for an undervalued offense right now is the Chicago bears. Um, a lot of the hype surrounding that offense is around the backfield, you know, figuring out between DMO, um, and Oh God, now I forgot his name. Herbert. Yeah. Uh, who is, who is, you know, yes, they both offer, 
potential volume because we've seen that team utilize basically a borderline demi workhorse role. But what else do we have going? We they are running behind the PFF's 32nd ranked offensive line heading into this season from a run blocking standpoint. Uh, we are, they have a mobile quarterback, uh, who is being basically left for dead. He's off the board at like quarterback 15, 16 range right now, uh, in Justin Fields, Justin Fields is actually my highest exposure at quarterback. Uh, I think that, you know, if he improves his pocket presence, which is something that young quarterbacks should be expected to do as they enter second, third year in the NFL, uh, seeing a faster game. I think he improves his pocket presence. He's going to be one of these quarterbacks that we're talking about in the same vein as, you know, Lamar Jackson. He has the same tools uh, and can be this top five fantasy quarterback. So loving grabbing Justin Fields, loving pairing him uh, with his wide receiver one in Darnell Mooney, loving bringing it, uh, bringing the tight end in for the fun. Uh, with Cole Komet. Uh, Cole Komet drafted as like the tight end 16, 17, somewhere around there. Um, and then uh, obviously Darnell Mooney is in somewhere in the fifth to sixth round uh, window right now. So both those guys and that offense, that passing offense in particular, uh, I am jumping all over in this early draft window. Any parting shots, man? That was an absolute blast jamming with you. No, it's been great. Uh, first podcast of my career here. So let's been, go. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun getting in, getting in here and uh, just talking about fantasy football. I mean, I could talk about fantasy football all day, especially best ball. It's great that it's new. It feels like DFS when it was new. So, you know, back when if you're playing DFS as long as I have, you remember when it was new and people were still kind of figuring things out, trying different things, a lot of different opinions. And uh, that's kind of what best ball feels like right now. So it's an exciting time to be playing. Love it, man. That is a pretty much the most perfect uh, parting shot you could throw out uh, when we're talking about this, you know, best ball theory, because we're so heavily in the theory realm right now where people are trying new things. People are seeing what works, what doesn't people are, you know, developing their own game plans to beat this game. And uh, that is like firmly where we are. And I love it because that is right in my wheelhouse. Man, that was a pleasure. Again, uh, guest for this week was Pappy. You'll see him around OWS this year. You saw him uh, around OWS last year, providing content, providing all kinds of good stuff. So check him out. You want to throw out – you have Twitter handle you want to throw out, dude? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's at Pappy324. Uh, I'm going to be getting on Twitter for the very first time. Again, I'm not, I haven't been a big social media guy. I've actually never sent a tweet in my life. I think my very first one will be to the OWS family this year. I'm going to be active uh, for the games this year, so excited to be using Twitter. Yes, dude. Let's go. Yeah. We're just, man, I'm just stealing virginities everywhere. That's great. Getting me in social media, man. It's, it's, it's <laughs> going to be me what I I just old enough where I was like, ah, humbug with that social media, but I'm going to, I'm going to get in the, you know, heard and participate. Let's go, man. I am Hilo. You'll catch us again back at it next Friday, uh, where we are going to be bringing on Pavel, making his season debut after a little bout with the vid. So he's healing up. He should be ready to go for next week. Pappy, it was a pleasure, my dude. Again, we'll see you around the OWS streets and OWS fam. Till next week. Peace. Peace.